Our scripture reading today, this morning, comes from Malachi 1, 6-14. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present, the, or present the, your, that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From, for from the rising of its sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in its flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word today, we're reminded of the parable of the sower, that among us uh, there are those who hear in different ways. You're, we're reminded in your word that your word will not return unto you void. So we ask that for each person here today, that the devil may not come and take away the word from hearts, that the word would be rooted and deep so in times of testing we might not fall away, that others might not be choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, but that your word this morning would find good soil in every heart here, that we would hear your word Hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. We pray this in your name. Amen. Back in 2017, I received in the mail a personal invitation from the White House with the president inviting me to join him and the first lady at a Gold Star family ceremony that is a reception for family members who had lost an immediate family member in combat. Uh, 
in regards to my brother Joe, who I lost in Afghanistan. So naturally, I went. I mean, here I was presented with a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I did it at my own expense. I took leave from work. I bought a plane ticket from Utah to Washington, D.C. I paid for a cab and then a hotel. I put on my service dress uniform. I waited in line to be screened through security at the White House. I waited in line to meet the president and take a picture. And I observed a ceremony honoring my brother among 40 other lost loved ones. It was moving and meaningful. Now, I don't share this to brag or even garner sympathy at losing my brother in combat. I share this to prompt the question, would I go to such lengths to meet with God? Would you? I mean, it cost the president no more than a couple of hours of his evening as the taxpayers covered the rest. Now, for me, it cost a lot, but it was worth it. I was unbelievably honored and appreciative. But would I have gone to such lengths to meet with God? In today's text, we see Israel taking God for granted, offering Him worthless worship. They would not do for God what they would have done for their nation's leadership. Which brings us to the main idea of our passage. We, as God's children, have been called to give God our best, for God is worthy. We are to give God our best, for He is worthy. Now, earlier in the chapter, God met with His people in their discouragement by grounding His love for them in His special choosing of them by electing them to be His children over and against others whom He did not choose. But this special choosing does not excuse them from responding in a God-honoring way. While God is sovereign, man is responsible. But we don't see God's people taking responsibility for their high calling in our text today. Instead, we see those offering God worthless things in the name of worship reveal hearts of indifference and inconsideration for God. In verses 6 through 8, we see those offering God worthless things in the name of worship reveal hearts of indifference and inconsideration for God. And yet in verse 6, we see that God deserves our adoration and reverence. It says in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. So God begins his argument with a point they could all agree on. It's lawful, good, and right for children to honor their parents and servants, their masters, whether they are worthy or not. Yes, they would say, we affirm the lawfulness and the goodness of such things. This is as it should be. But what starts as affirmation quickly turns to rebuke, for God goes on to say in verse 6, Well, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. So God accuses the priests, the leaders of worship, of not rendering to God the honor that they would have given an earthly father or an earthly master. In fact, God goes even further in saying that they actually have contempt for his name. 
So this goes beyond merely taking God for granted. God sees that they regard him as worthless, as someone unworthy of their time and of their talent, someone undeserving of their best. But apparently this comes as a shock to the priests who've been going through the motions in their sacrifices. But you say, how have we despised your name? They're caught unawares. There's a blindness to their sinful condition, kind of like that scene in the movie, The Sixth Sense, where the young boy addressing his dead psychologist who doesn't know that he's dead says, I see dead people. They don't know they're dead. They only see what they want to see. The priests don't know the deadness of their worship. They only see what they want to see. Why is that the case? Because veering off course happens so slowly and so incrementally that we hardly realize just how far off course we've gone. And it's not just one little thing that we need to fix that's going to get us back on track. No, that ignores the fact that our entire approach towards God has been wrong. That God has become peripheral. He's an accessory that we've picked up at Claire's Boutique or a part that we grabbed at Ace Hardware. We're not in God's orbit. He's in our orbit. All things center around us, and this is wrong, and God knows it. In fact, we see, as verse 7 and 8 continues, that offering God worthless things shows contempt for Him. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, contempt of court. Someone charged with contempt of court has either disrespected or they have failed to obey a court order. So, for instance, if I were on trial and I failed to stand up when the judge entered the courtroom, or if I called him by his first name rather than by his title of your honor, or if I failed to show up on the day of my trial without significant reason and communication as to the reason of my absence, I could be charged with contempt of court. Well, in like fashion, these priests have shown contempt for God a far greater offense, being guilty of the charge of despising His name. Well, how have they despised God's name? It says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. I want you to notice the priest's sinful behavior directly profanes the name of God. In other words, they see God, again, as worthless, as unworthy of their efforts. He's nothing to them. He's nobody. And so they did what the law strictly forbade. They were supposed to bring sacrifices that were unblemished, undefiled, the best. God calls his people to give of their first fruits, meaning the first and the best of their flocks, their herds, their time, and their talents. Now, this is not simply an Old Testament admonition for Old Testament people, but a New Testament admonition for New Testament people as well. Except we no longer give of flocks and herds, but of ourselves, for we are, it says, the first fruits, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and James 1.18, meaning that we give the best of ourselves out of the abundance of what God has given us 
in Christ. He paid it all, and so we dare not give God the leftovers of our time and of our talents, but the best. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I want you to notice the progression of this verse. It actually mirrors the progression of what we see in Malachi chapter 1. It says God chose you. What does God do in the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1? He reminds them that He has chosen them, right? To do what? To be the first fruits, to give of themselves, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf to save us from our sins, our life now becomes a fragrant offering that we offer to God as He delights in our growing in the grace and knowledge of Him. Now that doesn't merely happen once a week for an hour on Sunday, but it's a lifestyle of gratitude. It's a lifestyle of growing in the Lord. James 1.18 says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. As a result of our being the firstfruits of his creatures, he goes on to say in verse 22, to command us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. In other words, we do not merely give mental assent to propositions of truth, but we live in that truth. These priests gave mental assent to their work, even physically went through the motions of offering worship, but they offered polluted sacrifices that did not meet the requirements of the law. The kind of gift that we give is indicative of what we think of the person we give to. Let me say that again. The kind of gift we give is indicative of the person or is indicative of what we think of the person we give to. For instance, a couple months ago, someone gave me something that I didn't really want. I certainly didn't need it. What do you think I did? I regifted it. I gave it to my niece and to my nephew with little thought and no sacrifice. That's how the priests here are approaching God keeping the best for themselves, and giving God what's left over. But instead of admitting and or repenting, the priests offer an incredulous response, but you say, how have we polluted you? As if they cannot comprehend, once again, what God means. How? You don't know? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? So God asks them rhetorical questions. They know it's evil. It would be one thing if the best they had were blind, lame, or sick, but God had given them better. He gave them the best, and they're giving Him the worst. If God has given you or I better, we should use it for His glory. For example, when I was a young airman in the Air Force, newly away from home, I'd occasionally toss a dollar or two in the offering plate at church if I put anything in. I saw the money that I had as mine, not something that God gave me. And with that self-centered attitude, what I had was never enough. 
I never had enough money to buy what I wanted, and what I had was costing me. Car breaking, phone bills, skyrocketing, buying things that promised satisfaction that didn't truly satisfy. Now, the worldly mind might say, he just needs more money. That'll fix it. Throw more money at the problem. But I didn't have a money problem. I had a heart problem. When my heart changed, or should I say when I got married at 19 and Adina performed some much-needed heart surgery on me, when I finally saw what I had as God's gift to me, when I started to give God out of my first fruits, setting aside a portion of every paycheck, the problem went away without me even getting a raise. Friends, God is after His people's hearts. He's not after their flocks and talents, but their hearts. God requires your best for your benefit. Isaiah 7, 9 warns, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the question is begged, is God worthy of your best? Well, let's look at the next section by way of illustration. We see as verse 8 continues that we should not offer God what we would not offer someone we honor. He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept that? Show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Again, a rhetorical question. Of course not is the answer. But this question's really meant to get them thinking because they're trying to pass off to God what they would never pass off to someone in authority meaning they do not see God as God. They do not see Him as authoritative, as having the power of life and death and well-being over them. And So this prompts us to consider, do we think more of our politicians, probably not, or our celebrities, cultural figures, than we do of God? To use the vernacular of the day, who is your influencer? Whose opinion matters to you? Whose word do you see as authoritative? Now, the word authoritative, I think, may in fact be too strong a word for our plastic, malleable, postmodern culture. Anyone and everyone might fit that role or no one, depending on the mood of the day. We think we have the freedom to choose who we're listening to when in fact we've been conditioned by our choices and by online algorithms giving us more content to consume based on our previous searches and our own laziness, and perhaps even we may in fact be in spiritual bondage. These priests are in bondage to their sin. In verses 6 through 8, we see that those offering God worthless things in the name of worship reveal hearts of indifference and inconsideration for God. But there's an alternative, for we see in verses 9 through 14, those seeking God's forgiveness for offering worthless things in the name of worship continue in God's favor. Those seeking God's forgiveness for offering worthless things in the name of worship continue in God's favor. We see in verses 9 and 10 that we are to pray earnestly for God's forgiveness or give up the worship charade. He says in verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that He might be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will He show you favor? If we would treat God 
with such contempt as the priest did here, we would do well to heed this imperative, don't wait, but earnestly entreat God's favor immediately. Now, this requires we admit wrongdoing on our part, not papering over it with excuses like I was tired or I was rushed or, or whatever. No, I want you to notice here that God's grace is conditioned upon his people asking for it. Yes, he gives some form of common grace to all, bringing rain on the just and the unjust, as we see in Matthew 5.45, but special grace, saving grace, the kind of grace that receives forgiveness must be asked for. But this can only happen if we've been convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit that there is something for which we need to be forgiven. One commentator says, God has no pleasure in or respect for the worshiper who offers him something that is corrupt, ruined, and therefore worthless. It's the Old Testament equivalent of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In other words, partaking in the symbol of God's forgiveness without seeking forgiveness. That's what they're doing, sacrificing blemished animals, animals infused with symbolism of God's or Christ's future perfect sacrifice. Unknowingly, they tarnish the image of Christ in so doing. The question is begged for us, do we do any better? I mean, surely there is grace and mercy offered in the sacrifice of Christ, but it must be sought. We must earnestly entreat the favor of God, heeding the admonition of 2 Corinthians 13.5, which says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize about this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. God's not pleased with the priest's worship, saying, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He's saying it would be better for you to stop all attempts at vain worship altogether rather than break the law. There are churches across the land that God would rather see shut down than continue in unfaithfulness. And we as a church are not immune to this. We see repeatedly throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Judges, that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the works that He had done. Why do you think we're doing a parenting seminar right now? We don't want that. We want to see another generation arise who knows the Lord and the work that He has done. But should we take our eyes off of the prize, sometimes it would be better for us to stop all attempts at vain worship than to break God's law. Now, we need to be careful here. We may be tempted to interpret this to mean that we should only worship when we feel like it, or when our hearts are completely right. That's not what he's saying. If we waited until then, there would be very little worship. God condemns their worship because it was expressly forbidden in the law. In other words, if you're offering worship in a way that is expressly forbidden in Scripture, that's not worship pleasing to God. We see this in the Corinthian church where the church in the name of quote-unquote love accepts gross sinfulness in their midst. With one of the church members having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife in chapter 5, 
with others violating the consciences of weaker brethren by eating food offered to idols in chapter 8, and still others eating so much at the Lord's Supper that they leave nothing for other members in chapter 11. I'm sure we won't have that problem today. God would see this kind of thing shut down. It's unacceptable worship, if we could even call it that. We bear God's name. We dare not drag that name through the, flo- the, the sewer of flagrant, gross sinfulness. For if we do, we see in verse 11 that God will find other worshipers who will honor him. It says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And this is exactly what happened. Jesus declared in Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. But we need to remember the context here. God has divinely elected them to be his. He has shown Israel special favor as we see in the first five verses of Malachi. Romans 11, verse 11 and 12 gives us the clue as to what God is doing with all of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. He says, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, he will restore them. But their trespass means Gentile inclusion, our inclusion. As this verse in Malachi, verse 11 predicts, a pure offering will be and now has been offered. Jesus fulfills this verse. According to Hebrews 9.12, Jesus entered once for all into holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen. And for what purpose? Verse 14, it says, to purify our conscience from dead works dead works like the ones that we see here, to serve the living God. And so as a result, we offer our lives as incense being offered to God's name, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 2.15. Brothers and sisters, God's name will be great among the nations. Hallelujah. In the meantime, we're warned in verses 12 and 13 that worship becomes a drudgery for those offering worthless worship. If worship has become a drudgery for you, please pay attention. As the priests continue bringing sacrifices taken by violence, sacrifices lame or sick, as they continue to live out their sinful behavior, they come to the conclusion What a weariness this is. What a weariness this is. And they snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Because they have forgotten the object of their worship, their form of worship has become wearisome. What's the point? You see this in dying churches. You see this among unbelievers in churches. You see this, in fact, in several of the churches mentioned in the first few chapters of Revelation. 
God removes their lampstand. He removes their witness. God throws them on a sickbed. They're weak and ineffective. God spits them out of his mouth. They're no longer his. For often they have forgotten the object of their worship, God himself. Now, Jesus warns us how to spot this in Matthew 7, 16. He says, you will recognize them by their what? Their fruits. Are they bearing good fruit in keeping with repentance? Or are they bearing bad fruit in justifying sinfulness and exhibiting lethargy? What's God's response to this worrisome worship? He says, shall I accept this from your hand? The answer is an emphatic no. In fact, we see in verse 14 that God's punishment awaits those who ruin worship. In in short, he says, cursed be the cheat who offers what is blemished. It's a strong language. I'm not sure we realize just what it means to be cursed by God. We see something of what curse looks like in Luke 17. Jesus says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Leading others in the worship of God is serious business, so serious, in fact, that God warns in James 3 that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The worship of God is serious, so we best take it seriously. Recently, uh, Robert Brown, a young man attending our church in my community group these last few months, drew my attention to a new video on YouTube by the psychologist Jordan Peterson entitled, Message to the Christian Churches. In it, he calls the churches to its responsibility, particularly its responsibility to young men. He says, ask more and not less of those you are inviting. Ask more of them than anyone ever has. Remind them who they are in the deepest sense and help them become that. You are churches for God's sake. Quit fighting for social justice. Quit saving the planet. Attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. Do it now before it's too late. The hour is nigh. Strong words, needed words, words coming from a man who doesn't even necessarily claim Christianity in any orthodox sense of the word. Attend to some souls. We're reminded in Proverbs 29, 18, that where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. That sounds so familiar. That sounds like where we're at. But it says, blessed is he who keeps the law. You know we can't, but there was one who did. The priests were to lead the people in the worship of God. Their failure in rightly doing so brings cursing. Why? He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. His name will be feared, revered, reverenced. From Pittsburgh to Paris to Papua New Guinea, everywhere else in between and to the ends of the earth, God will receive worship 
for he is worthy of worship. If it's not from you, if it's not from me, it will be from another. Now, perhaps I asked the wrong question at the beginning. Rather than wonder as to whether or not we would go to such lengths to meet with God, perhaps we instead revel in the reality that God went to such great lengths in meeting us. He sent His Son to be the payment for our sin, putting on Him the punishment that we rightly deserved. But this payment must be asked for. We need to ask for forgiveness, turning from trusting in our sin and ourself to trusting in God. After all, God made it all and God paid it all. Would we, in turn, give God less? Jesus didn't pay it all for us to squander it on worthless worship and bad living. He's called us to be his first fruits, to give of ourselves in worship and honor of him. His name will be great among the nations. Would you offer him worship worthy of his majesty, or would you be cursed among the rest?